Philadelphia. So Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to pick up the next church age of of Philadelphia. And um, let me get my notes where they need to be. There we go. So uh, let's just look at the text before we do anything else. Revelation chapter 3, and we will pick it up in verse... Got to get there myself. Revelation 3, <clears throat> and starting in verse um, 7. So Revelation 3, 7. And, the, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength. And has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take, uh, take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So um, this is a really this is one of the churches that uh, really has a, a really good, um, has nothing against it of all the churches that are in the, of the seven churches, and it's a church that we, as a ch- every church, should want to model themselves after. So there's a lot of really neat things here to consider. Um, and so understanding the time frame, if you have the notes, this church age begins with the close of the Dark Ages and ends at the conclusion of the 19th century. And so <clears throat> that's the beginning of the modern industrial age, which is amazing to think about. So as far as human history goes, you're, you're going about, um, you know, you go what, four or five, uh, 5,000 years, you know, almost 6,000 years of history, human history has been agricultural. And then all of a sudden this industrial age, you know, cranks up in the 1880s primarily through, you know, through, well, as far as ages, <clears throat> I don't, I'm going to get off my notes, so this will, and I, I'm already late on time, so forget getting done tonight. But uh, <clears throat> so when you think about ages, it's fascinating to think about because, the world's been agri- was agricultural up until the 1880s, which it still was primarily agricultural, even then, and and until uh, you know the 1880s started the industrial age, and then and then the 60s brought on the uh, you know the space age, the 70s, and then the uh, computer age, and then the information age, and now we're in the communication age. So in my lifetime and your all's lifetime, you know, uh, we have gone from space age to communication age. We've gone through like several iterations. Most people throughout human history were on one, and it was the ag, you know, and uh, that was it. And that things just moved very slowly, and it, it was what it was. You didn't expect a lot of change. And uh, my grandmother died a few years ago at 93, <clears throat> and uh, she was born in the, uh, the early 20s. My grandfather in 1918 is when he was born. And so for those of us that are a little older, and we've had grandparents that came out of the late 1800s or early 1900s, um, you know, and you talk to them. Yeah, I was at a family reunion last year, just uh, you know, talking about my my folks that grew up at Cross Timbers, me and my great grandmother. And uh, during the Great Depression, they had to leave the city, 
and go to cross timbers down here by the lake and live off the land. They had a house with, you know, no running water and just literally lived in a shack. She says the best years of her life, and uh, she enjoyed that the best. And I also, I lost a relative. I learned, I didn't know this. I lost lost a relative at that same time. It would be her her, uh, sister's son. Uh, that my great uncle passed away because he had a, I think it was an axe wound or some sort of wound, shot wound, maybe a, a bullet wound, I don't remember, some sort of wound, uh, and they could not get him uh, to the hospital in time. They couldn't get him from a trip from today from Truman Lake to Kansas City. It would take us, you know, an hour and 15, 20 minutes if we had our pedal to the metal, and uh, they couldn't get him to medical treatment in time, and uh, so he died so it's a sad story. I was thinking about it. The blessings and the cursings of modern technology, you know. And so um, it's amazing because uh, in the 19th century, it's the beginning of the modern industrial age. Things are really cranking up as far as things moving. And this uh, period introduces us to the greatest time in a missionary activity as well. There's a reason I'm talking about this uh, because, <clears throat> you know, the world is really at, at our disposal for missions. Um, and so... Uh, more fruit is harvested and more Bible-believing churches are started in, in this time than any other time in, in church history. And so the time will only uh, be rivaled by the time in the coming tribulation of the 144,000 Jewish male virgins that will get the uh, uh, everlasting gospel around the world in the face of the Antichrist, which is coming around the corner you know, pretty quick. And so, uh, so it's something that, interesting when you look at it in terms of church history. Of course, we've talked about how you can't look at church history uh, without looking at tomorrow as well, because this is a book of prophecy. And so, so the Roman Catholic Church, which we've been tracking all the way through, uh, because she stewards the mystery of Babylon religion uh, until the midpoint of the tribulation, Roman, the Roman Catholic Church almost shuts down due to the Reformation. And so um, the Reformation succeeded in bringing Rome... Um, <coughs> in bringing Rome to a point of internal conflict and discredit. So they can't hide from all the atrocities that it was doing in the Crusades and the Inquisitions. I was just sharing with someone in, uh, I think in Shepherd, in HBI the other day, uh, I don't remember who, somebody in the church, I was, I had a, I had a, an old Roman Catholic, it may have been you, Matt, I don't recollect, but I was sharing with somebody that I had this old Roman Catholic uh, uh, book on how to deal with Americans and evangelicals, and it was from around the early 1900s, like 1910, 1915. It was very, it was early on in the, the around the turn of the century, the last century, not this century. And uh, I, I lent that out, and I never got it back. I don't know what I did with it, so it's it's gone. And uh, I wish I still had it. It's interesting though, because in that book, it was long before Vatican II, you know, 50 years plus before Vatican II, and so the the tone, man, it was harsh. So you guys, sometimes maybe people watching in or, or people might listen to me talk about Rome and think, man, Brian, what's your problem with Rome? I don't have a problem with Roman Catholics. I love them. I've already told everybody that. No problem. And, uh, but the, the system itself is wicked, and that's just all there is to it. And you can see that very, very plainly. Uh, and that's why you, they needed Vatican II, which was to sweep a lot of that under the rug, right, especially in the 60s because they also supported Hitler. The SS was trained by the Jesuits. That's all, that's factoids. I mean, that's not, that's not, you know, slinging mud. That's just the way it is. So, so uh, man, Rome has been involved in a lot of stuff for a lot of years. And so, uh, you know, during the time of the Reformation, it really was shaken up by 
Luther and all the, the, the normal protesters, the Protestants, which I would, I would uh, tell you it all is coming from Bible believers first. You've got those guys shook up. And then, of course, it, uh, it brought an end, not an end, but it definitely put a hurt on the Roman Catholic system. So the Roman Catholic Church uh, all but you know, disappears from uh, the international public scene in order to concentrate on her future comeback. And uh, she has definitely not quit. As a, matter of, as a matter of fact, that's partially why you have the Jesuit order. The Jesuit order is a, is a response. Uh, the Jesuits are not priests necessarily, but they become, uh, they're basically the cream, of, not the cream of the crop, but um, they become, they're key operatives in culture. And so that's basically what a, a Jesuit is. They, they're vetted. There's certain people that can bring influence to a culture, and they're brought in specifically for that purpose. So this Roman Catholic pope that we had today, who was really a bar, he's a bouncer in Argentina, right? Uh, now he's the pope. So it's an interesting, you know, progression. Uh, and so uh, that's not normal, right? It's not Pope John Paul II who comes up under the, you know, auspices of the church and for all intents and purposes is a good Roman Catholic his whole life and ushered up into the, you know, being priesthood and then the pope. Yes, ma'am. Yes, he is the, I think he's, if I have, and I'm not an expert on Roman Catholicism, but I'm pretty sure he is the only uh, pope that's ever was a Jesuit. So the Jesuit order was not around forever. It's, uh, it's I don't remember what year it started. Someone can Google that for me. But uh, it came around, and, um, of course, uh, it's, it's very, uh, very effectual in their workings because Rome is not just a church. It's a nation. It's, the, it's a nation. It's a city-state and it has its own place in the UN. And in my lifetime, they've gone back and forth with Rome, being a state and being a church, which is what she does. She goes back and forth, but even the UN. And so guys like Ian Paisley <clears throat> comes from a Reformed tradition. He's now passed away, but he was very influential in Ireland. And uh, he, he protested the Pope as the Antichrist in the, in the floor of the UN uh, in the, I think, of the 90s or the late 80s. Um, and uh, are you finding that, Matt? If you get that, let me. Okay. Right. So that what makes sense. The reason I brought that up is is uh, in response. So Matt was just looking up in Wikipedia. Uh, so the order, you know, it's right if it's on Wikipedia, right? <clears throat> so the order, according to Wikipedia, uh, our trusty source here. Um, is the order started in 1539, is what you said? Yeah. So you can understand how that would work. So the advent of the printing press, now people, because before this, if you were going to be literate in Europe, um, uh, you were going to be, you're going to go through the church because most people were not literate unless they went to the monastery. So the church had a lockdown on literacy and, and language for that matter. <clears throat> and so uh, with the advent of the printing press, people, you know, there were always people who could read outside of the Roman church. Uh, but out, but but once the, the advent of the printing press, then reading became much more available to people, and uh, the ability to that, you know that's so it does it makes sense. And I haven't checked into all the backgrounds of the origins of the Jesuits, but um, that order was established about the same time as the Philadelphian Church Age, and I would suspect, in part, in response to the influence of the Word of God. Because when you, and this is not in the notes, so I'm just talking right now, guys. So just let me talk to you a little bit about church history. So during this time of church history, of course, the, the, the King James Bible it doesn't come to the fore until 1611. 
And so the Protestants weren't really happy with it, and nor were the Anglicans. But it was still, it was a common, it became, that's why King James allowed it. I mean, he's like, let's standardize it. And in so doing, he standardized the English language. And so they were the creme of the crop as far as translators of the Word of God at that time. We call, I, when I, I always call them the King James gang, of course, you guys in Missouri know what that means. But if you're listening from somewhere else around the world, um, uh, uh, we had the James gang that used to run around this area. So anyway, so we call them the King James gang. But anyway, they were the, the you know, Westminster uh, and uh, Oxford and Cambridge had uh, these scholars that, that were commissioned by the king uh, and agreed. And, and of course, everyone agreed to it. Uh, and and the, big, who, the big enemy, who's the big enemy at the time of the translation of the King James Bible, just geopolitically, who was the big enemy of England at that time? Spain or Rome, more particularly, who was credited with blow, trying to blow up King James? Many people don't know this. To this day, every every year in England, like we have a Fourth of July holiday and everybody shoots off fireworks. In England, they have a holiday that they remember when Rome tried to overthrow the crown, and that was King James. And Rome, and and by the way, Anglicans in uh, England in general, they're no fan of King James. They think he was a loser. Uh, there's not, if you go through uh, their, their museums, there's very, the, the, you know what's left of King James is his Bible. They do not have a lot to say about King James. King Stuart of Scotland, to be exact, that's probably half the problem, because he's really not all British anyway. He was a Scotsman. But anyhow, so, so, so King James, they tried to blow him up, and the, they, being the Roman Catholic uh, Anglicans, or not Anglicans, but Englishmen, influenced by Rome. So the way it's, and again, this is not me being uh, salacious or trying to, you know, blow up history out of proportion. This is facts. So in Great Britain, they still to this day, they, they remember this, just like we remember the American Revolution. They celebrate the fact that it got foiled. They did blow it up, but it got foiled. King James lived and England continued on. And so they see that as a pivotal, to this day, they celebrate as a pivotal point in that God, God blessed the king, God kept the crown. So this goes back to King Henry VIII, who himself was a rascal, right? Nobody here is going to, I'm not going to advocate for King Henry. I'm not going to advocate for King James, for that matter. I don't even know if he's saved. But at the end of the day, God was using these principalities and powers to give people the word of God. And uh, not just Anglo people, uh, you know, got to be careful with, you know, critical text or critical race theory. But... Uh, to get the word of God, get the first of all standardize the language the world speaks, uh, regardless of what color you are and where you come from, and then get that out around the world. Which today the English language is the standard. Now, when this was all going on before the Philadelphian Church Age, uh, England was just—I mean, for King Henry to break off and and say, "Hey, look, I'm going to start my own thing." Well, that's a big deal. Um, that's a big deal. And, and so it was, it's, God was moving. Now, he wasn't just moving in England, by the way. The Reformation brought a huge, I mean, it just, it was rippling across the world, especially the world that was underneath the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic influence. So, uh, so you can imagine then, again, getting back to the Jesuits, they had to respond uh, with something, and, and, and uh, then they, you know, they have been working their plan ever since. And it's going to work out good for them here in the coming days with the Green New Deal and and uh, sustainable development and all of that stuff. They've got a they've got a lot of good things happening there for them. So uh, the devil uh, has a plan. They have a plan, and then God has a plan. It's going to work it all out. But 
Um, so the reformers succeed in bringing Rome to a point of internal conflict, and then, uh, you know, disappears maybe, maybe too strong of a word, but the influence is greatly diminished uh, for a season, which is con- congruent with what you see in Revelation 3 when it says there that uh, in verse 7, And the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, Those things saith he that is holy, that is true, that hath the key of David, which is the, the fulfillment of God's word, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, right, a missions door, uh, a Bible door that no man uh, can shut uh, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Uh, behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. So the power of the Bible-believing peoples ends up growing immensely because God allowed it in that time. So <clears throat> we'll get into that. And, and, of course, even to this day, it's greatly maligned uh, in geopolitical circles. Okay, so point D, uh, the Bible is back in the hands of the common man. So this has been a long time since common men had the Bible, right? You're going back to the first you know, 400 years uh, of uh, church history. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, maybe you could make an argument for the first five, six hundred years, maybe seven at the most. So the, the church has, has really put a corner on the Word of God. And then, and then the, the invitation of, their, I'm sorry, the invention, which I've already alluded to, of the printing press by Gutenberg, meant that all the men could obtain a copy of God's Word. So uh, Martin Luther, uh, his German Bible and the authorized version uh, of the 1611, uh, were used to evangelize the world. So the Saxon language uh, comes into the English language, and and so uh, that ends up becoming, you know. And again, this is linguistically the, the the King James Bible. It's still the apex. That's why when kids study Shakespeare, they don't dumb it down. I guess Leonardo DiCaprio did, but they they don't dumb it down. Uh, they no, they didn't. Even when they remade some crap. Uh, forgive me, that's a bad word. Some poor version. Of, uh, of uh, that was, uh, forgive me, that was probably not the spirit. So, um, so um, some really bad version of Shakespeare. That's not, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm sincere in that. Um, so, so whenever they, when they did that, even, even Leonardo DiCaprio, with all of the other baloney that was going on around in their, in their movie, uh, they still used the King's English, right? Because it's not Shakespeare unless it's Shakespeare. Right? It's not, it's not, it's, there's something about, um, you know, that, that was the apex of English literature and language. Uh, not to say there's not a lot of good things since then, but it really standardized English language. Not that it doesn't change and all that. I'm not going to get into an argument on that. At the end of the day, though, that's the, it's the standard. It still is in many respects. If you're doing etymology, you're going to go back there to find out where it came from. All right, so this period um, was blessed. Uh, this time period was blessed with the greatest achievements in music uh, and art and science. Wait a minute. There we go. This time period was was uh, blessed with the greatest achievements in music, art, science, industry, travel, and discovery. And so, as I've already mentioned, um, you know, you had the agricultural and industrial revolutions that occurred. Uh, now, agriculture wasn't like a. It, there was a revolution, right? I mean, you, this is crazy to think about. I mean, you think about just American history, right? And John Deere. And, you know, like, we're, like, getting excited over, over a metal plow. I mean, we think about that today. You're like, what's the big deal? Yeah, they were using wood before that. 
Right. It, right. It was just, and, and think about that. And that wasn't that long ago. And now we got GPS is getting our, you don't even have to get in your tractor and it just takes off around, you know. But I mean, it just, before, what, what, when was the plow, the, uh, John, the John Deere, the metal plow, what, 18, 18, let's just say mid-1850s, around that, before the Civil War. That wasn't that long ago in history. I mean, it really wasn't that long ago. The, the cotton gin, Eli Whitney, the cotton gin, little things like that. We call them little today because they're like, oh, no big deal. But those were huge inventions. They're like, the, they're like the printing press, you know, to agriculture. And so these things are being, you know, why? Because people were free, free to think, free to invent. Right. You know, every seed, yeah, ge- yeah. now we've got genetically modified uh, seeds, we've got genetically modified people, uh, we got, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's all Genesis 6. So the problem is men can't be trusted, which we're getting at, we're just jumping right over to Laodicea and going into the book of Revelation further, but you're right, it is, that's, it's a sad thing. There's a reason that God tamped back on the languages, you think, if you think about it, right, at the, at the Tower of Babel. Um, there wasn't a, there, the Gutenberg press was huge because before that you had to handwrite it, and God, God intentionally to preserve humanity, He didn't allow people to you know advance that very fast in that area because we destroy ourselves like we're getting ready to do now, and so um, it all has to come in God's time because at the end of the day the only person that can save all of us from from humanity is is Him right He's the only one because you can't. Absolute power cannot be trusted absolutely unless it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only man that can handle that kind of authority. This is really good discussion, though, because it's amazing when you put history in context. You think about 1850s, there's a, wow, it wasn't very long ago. But it helps you kind of see how rapidly things have advanced. It's amazing. And so I, was, I was, went to, on a mission trip to Jamaica, now that we're talking about agriculture, and uh, I was shocked. You know, I grew up, my dad built Alice Charmer's combines and, you know, all of that, and he did pretty advanced stuff with those small, small Alice Chalmers combines. They use them in Europe, so they were some of the pioneers in leveling up the, the calves and stuff like that and getting them to, to uh, you know, work on smaller plots of land with more hills and stuff like that. So they sold a lot to Europe, where John Deere had a lot of the bigger equipment. But anyway, I kinda, I'm into that thing is all I'm saying. I used to play with little uh, combines and stuff when I was a kid, and... Uh, and so I was, I was going on a mission trip with this young man. Uh, me and Sam went to Jamaica to see Bob Weston. And one of the kids on the trip uh, who I, I went to high school with, his mom and dad, and he's, he's a student at MU, he's, he's telling me about his ag, his ag degree and, and his work. He's already, even though he's a student, he's already working for farmers out and around here. And uh, he's like, yeah. He goes, they, they count every seed. And I'm like, what? He's like, oh, yeah, every seed. They stitch the seeds into the ground. They know exactly what seed's going in every, and I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, oh, no. He's telling me how the technology... And then when they harvest, they can harvest the same way. And uh, I'm like, that is crazy. The GMOs. And so, I mean, it is. I mean, if you don't have genetically modified seed, if you get some heirloom seed out here, you're going to have a hard time finding a, a, uh, a grain bin that's going to take it, right? If it, doesn't have, uh, if, they don't, if it doesn't have the right GMO stamp. So they'll put it on the microscope and say, nope, we don't take this seed. So it's amazing and scary uh, how how the food system is so kind of locked down because you know I, the difference between heirlooms heirlooms is you can 
harvest them, replant them, and they'll grow because that's the way God designed it. Versus we're going to genetically modify this seed, which there's some benefits to that, obviously. And we've always genetically modified seed, but it's not so rapidly and not so sophisticated. Um, so this is so rapid and sophisticated, you drop that seed in the ground, it's going to grow one time until you go back and buy another seed. And they're going to be able to track that seed from the time it goes in the ground to the yield as it comes out on the harvest. And the equipment and the machinery is now sophisticated enough to do that. Yes, Ron. <clears throat> Oh, they hybrid back and they jump back because God's designed the DNA. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, they're messing with stuff right now. They, don't, they know not what they do. <laughs> yeah, whoever's down at the Stowers Institute uh, tonight, they need to be careful what they're messing with. But anyway, that's not GMO. That's more like human GMO down there or human stuff they're doing down there. But at any rate, there's a lot of crazy uh, stuff going on with genetic uh, modifications, not only of plants but even humans. But... Uh, Anyway, I'm getting off track a little bit, um, but it is, again, the advancement, agricultural advance, uh, and then, of course, we understand the, this, you know, the world. You got Magellan, Cortez, Rembrandt, of course, that's in the art world, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Bach, Beethoven. I mean, these guys understood the world was round, but they had to keep it on the down low because Rome was going to kill them, you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just amazing how things have advanced, and even with music, it was at its apex. I mean, we don't talk about you, you still to this day, Bach, Beethoven, classical music is the, it is the apex of music. It just is. And I don't even know, I'm out of my league when I talk about that stuff, but I, I know that much. It's, it's, uh, it's mathematical, it's, 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 it's amazing. They didn't have computers either. It's beautiful. Uh, some of it is, some of it's kind of freaky, but it's all, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing uh, how these guys, they were sharp, God used their minds. This is even I talk about Jonathan Edwards a lot. I'm fascinated with his mind, um, and even guys like uh, Spurgeon. Just the voluminous amounts of, of of oratory thoughts that could be, you know, assimilated, communicated. These people were on a different level. They were not distracted. They were very focused and very well read, very well educated. All from just a normal, old-fashioned, classical education: reading, writing. They used to probably learned a couple languages back in the day, and um, they knew how to think, knew how to think very, very well. All right, so atheism and humanism, speaking of thinking, these are also, uh, they're coming right behind. So atheism, humanism, evolution, intellectualism begin uh, to counter the movement of God's word to the world. So these in the 1500s start to, to really uh, pop up as well up through the, uh, you know, mainly the 1800s. The, actually, us, the independent Baptist movement, is a response in the 1800s. The fundamentals, the fundamentalists, came from a response to the infiltration of, of philosophical teaching into the seminaries. So the independent fundamental Baptists rejected that, and that's how the, that's how the fundamental Baptist movement started. Um, and so uh, they were rejecting what was going on in the seminaries and said, we've got to do our own thing because it's too influenced by these European rationalists. And, uh, and it was. And so, uh, so that battle's been going on and finds its way into our very movement. We're kind of a, still a response to that, uh, which is not a surprise. So men like uh, uh, Spinoza, Kant, um, Freud, Huxley, um, 
Marx. Everybody should know Marx today, right? Because we're dealing with his philosophies on steroids. Darwin, same thing. Darwin's kind of ran his course now. If anybody has a brain, you, Darwin is, you just, intelligent design has just kicked him to the curb. So Darwin's philosophies and theories are gone. But they still use them because they're convenient. And so they use them when they want to and then toss them when they don't. So it's always expedient to use Darwin when necessary. Uh, but me being a young, you know, coming up uh, in the 70s and 80s, we were full on, you know, we were taught simple cell uh, biology and Darwinian from the time I was a little kid up through high school. Even when I was in high school in the 80s, they were still teaching simple cell because the electron microscope hadn't been, um, it was probably invented, but it wasn't in circulation yet. So, uh, of course, once they started drilling down in the electron microscope, you throw all the simple cell, cell technology away. That's just, we were just taught wrong, and it's just not true. And uh, it also just puts the Darwinian model in the trash can, just flush it down the toilet. So um, once you understand how complex a cell is, the Darwinian model no longer really makes any sense logically. It's just not possible. So, and a lot of intellectually honest scientists would agree with that. So, of course, no one's going to give God the credit, right? It has to be some other intelligent being other than a God in heaven, but that's another story. So psychoanalysis with Freud, uh, psychotherapies ultimately comes along in an attempt to replace the wisdom of God given through his word. Let's take a moment and look at Colossians 2. This is creeping into the, this time in history. Colossians is dealing with the, with the, obviously it's dealing with the things that we deal with today started as a response to the word of God's uh, uh, prominence in the Philadelphian church age. So the Laodicean church, which is the period we live in, is dealing with some of these things. So it's important that we see this. Colossians 2 and verse 4 says, And I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, right? So there's enticing words that we need to be careful of. Uh, he goes on down in verse 8. I'm just going to skip to it. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And so we even use the word philosophy probably a little too liberally because philosophy is really dealing with philo, right? And, and so philo's uh, uh, mindset, which was uh, very... Uh, very much not for the Word of God. That's where we get critical text. Uh, the critical text theory that we talk about that attacks God's Word comes from originally from Philo, right? And so, uh, so Augustine, uh, a lot of what he got was from the Greek uh, men like Philo, right? So philosophy. That uh, and so, but we we understand when we use that word in English today, we're talking about a a mindset, so to speak. But uh, psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Uh, Freud and all those guys made it popular, and uh, that ends up basically replacing the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the local church with man's wisdom. And so really, just to throw a shout-out, because I know when I start talking about psychology, uh, I make people mad in a hurry, and uh, because so many people are dependent on it. As a pastor, I know this from years of experience now, 20 years. I know, I know how that goes. Uh, there is, this is the thing. Psychology is good for diagnosing, but it can very rarely fix anything. So I'm not saying psychology in itself can't actually, from a human mindset, kind of say, yep. Now, the, now so just, just in a, I'm going to get off track again, but when you're talking about philosophy of psychology, what you're really doing, and I know we got majors in that in the room, um, and so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're really, you're, you're defaulting back to a um, Darwinian concept. So everything is evolving. So 
it, it, it kind of is fatalistic in a way because you, you can never get away from your past. You're always the product of your past. Whereas in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So the gospel blows up. There's some truth in, in, in the psychology, though, that you are in some ways the product of your past. So you're a fool, right, to think that you are not the composite of where you come from, right? And so that's why the Bible says train up a child in the way he should go. So when he's old, he doesn't depart. So there's definitely some, some, some wisdom, earthly wisdom, and some biblical wisdom in assessing the past. I do that in biblical counseling, right? I don't just assume somebody, even if they're a new creature, you just can't discount the past. The problem with psychology is it doesn't fix it. It's just, you're just stuck. Um, and so uh, it's important to, to understand that that's because it comes from a Darwinian mindset, from that, that this age in the 1500s with, with Hegel and then, which Hegel in himself wasn't, he was a Christian, or at least was a, he was Christ-minded. I don't know if he was saved or not, but those philosophies, I don't think, was, I don't think Hegel had a, he probably was, didn't have a penchant against God, but boy, Freud and all those guys did, right? And so, so they took those things and they devolve and they fight against God and they, they eclipse God's wisdom with man's wisdom. And so that's the problem. I used to, how many, this is really going back in the archives. I used to listen to Marshall Safer every day. Anybody remember that guy? So he was this Christian psychologist here in town in Overland Park. And he was, he was getting national. I mean, he, every, his radio show was blowing up. I mean, he was, he was all over the place. And the guy one day goes out in the parking lot in Overland Park and blows his head off. And you're, he's counseling the whole world every day. You know, and I, by that time, I was saved when I was listening to all this. And I enjoyed uh, listening to him to kind of discern what was biblical and what wasn't and all of that and how he dealt with people. Um, and he kind of was like, he just always talked in this monotone, <laughs> just like, can I help you? You know, just, it's, it was, yeah, KCMO or something. Yeah, so, uh, but that guy, I remember when that happened, I just thought, wow, man, that's, the guy with all the answers just went in the parking lot and killed himself. And, uh, and you know, the answer comes from the Word of God. Same things happen in churches, too. You've got to be careful. Don't worship me. Don't worship the pastor. Right? The wisdom comes from God. My job is to teach and impart, but my job is not to eclipse the authority of God's word. So you always, in a local church, when the pastor exalts himself over the word of God, you got all this wicked system that we're talking about in Rome. It happens in Baptist churches just as much. I hate to say that, but it's true. I've seen it. That's where you get a, a fundy, legalistic pastor. Next thing you know, he is God. His word goes and over God's word and that man you better run the other way because he's going to start hurting people anyway and it happens too often all right so um um I'm kind of getting off track here a little bit but it's fun okay so cults and uh, pseudo-christian groups begin to show up we're in Colossians chapter 2 look down in verse 18 it says it says uh, uh let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshy mind. So, uh, you know, we have some groups that come to mind here. Um, the, that would include the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Church of Christ, Unitarianism, uh, the theosophy, theosophy. That's one you don't hear a lot about. That is huge as far as influence. Probably of all the influence, Theosophical Society has the most uh, influence. So when we talk about elitist if there's elitist conspiracy theories, you're going to find it in the Theosophical Society. Like every major... Oh, I don't remember her name right now. But what? Alice wasn't 
Yeah, it wasn't Alice Springs is in Australia. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can look that up. Yeah, the uh, Mary Baker Eddy was not the Theosophical Society. Yeah, she's Christian Science, but all of those kind of have that that kind of. Uh, uh, was it? What was it? Alina Alina Bavatsky, Alina Bavatsky. Theosophical Society. So a lot of your major uh, players, like in Supreme Court justices and huge places of influence in the, in our country, belong to this Theosophical Society, and they do have a, me- a messianic prophecy that lines up very well with the Hindu philosophy. And so uh, it's interesting. They're looking for a Messiah, but it's not the same one we're looking for. So um, and so these cults come along. Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, they're catty corner across the road from us, uh, Christian science, uh, Mormons, right, which, which is another gospel, another New Testament, uh, charismatics, I roll along in the early 1900s, and, uh, and so there are a lot of subdivisions and spinoffs, and one of the, you know, that's one of the things that, that Rome has now, now uses to draw people back into Roman Catholicism, which I was subtly influenced by when I was, before I was a Christian, is I just had this thought that all religions came from Rome, and all of these splinter groups that we see here were all just some sort of perversion or offshoot of the Roman church, so I might as well just go back to Rome, because that's the real thing. That's how I thought before I was a Christian. When I left, I was going to walk away from the Baptist church. I wasn't saved yet, but I was walking away from that, thinking, well, I guess I'll just go be a Roman Catholic and do what I want to do, and then God intercepted me and said, no, you're going to get saved, and that's not where you're going, so I was like, thank you, Jesus. So, but, uh, but I had that mindset. So it wasn't until after I got saved and started studying my Bible and had church history courses like this where I really realized, oh, whoa, there always have been Bible-believing groups throughout church history. And, uh, and these offshoots, though, today uh, are going to be lumped in with you. So if you're a Bible believer and you're, you know how to rightly divide the Word of God, uh, when it comes to liturgical churches, a lot of times, especially Rome, uh, they're just going to say, you know what, you're just one of those wackos from America. You Baptists, you're crazy, and so um, and so you're just you're just right in there with the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and and the you know Unitarians and everybody else. So actually, we're not. They know that we're not, and then it was because we're even worse. <laughs> so we're so, worse than that because we hold to the Bible as an absolute authority, which is the epitome of ignorance among elitist thinkers. Uh, it's the epitome of ignorance to hold fast to the faithful word as you've been taught, and so we're going to be diametrically opposed in our in our mindset so all right so moving on um any questions thus far all right this is getting closer as you get into philadelphia and laodicea there's it's a lot closer in history and there's a lot more recorded history so there's a lot more to talk about a lot of the older history it's harder to dig stuff up because a lot of it's been buried and is in and in the dark literally all right so in our text we've read revelation 3 7 through 13 now let's consider the text a little bit deeper so the meaning of philadelphia is brotherly love, and uh, I think most people do know that. Even that's been perverted, you know. So, um, I was a, I was an adult before I realized, you know. I'm like, oh, Elton John, that's come on. Oh, I was, I was. Uh, it's sad, you know. You can't even have anything pure. So, uh, true brotherly love is is taking uh, the gospel to the world under the banner of willingness to die for it. In John 15, 3, many missionaries gave their lives to spread the gospel. And so in the time of Philadelphia, you really saw real brotherly love being manifest among the church. 
And I'll talk a little bit more about that, probably not tonight, probably next week, because um, I'm going to run out of time. But, <clears throat> but we'll get into that a little bit more. So the introduction uh, of the church of, uh, the church of Laodicea, Jesus identifies himself as holy and true, and uh, he's possessing the key of David. And so David was a man after God's own heart. And uh, in Acts 13, 22, it says that, 1 Samuel 13, 14. He was far, far from a perfect man, but he, did it, he was a man after God's own heart. Uh, he loved what God had to say, right? So, uh, Psalm chapter 19. Uh, let's look back at, so I'm not going to look at all those references. You got all of, all of uh, 119th Psalm, but let's look at Psalm 19, uh, 7 through 11. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. <clears throat> More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. <clears throat> so in the Philadelphian church age, uh, there were men like Tyndale who died at the stake uh, to see the Bible translated into English. I mean, burned at the stake over, over this book. And, and so the Bible was a big deal. Uh, we take it very lightly in our culture. If this Bible wasn't such a big deal, why do you think it's such a big deal? I mean, in India or in uh, China, right? They produce all kinds of Bibles, but they do not want you showing up on the street corner preaching it, right? They, they'll, they'll, they'll sell it because they know it's valuable. They'll create it in a warehouse and, and, and sell it to Americans, but they're definitely not going to let a bunch of Chinese people loose with this book. Guarantee that. And, uh, and, uh, and if you get too crazy, they'll just... You know, tear your church down and uh, and take your people into custody, and so and so this Bible is a big deal. You know, I took Bibles into closed countries, and man, I'm sitting there in this. I'm sitting there reading the newspaper and seeing people getting arrested for the Jesus film. I got Bibles in my backpack and Jesus films. You know, and I'm like, what? If it wasn't a big deal, it wouldn't be such a big deal. There, the Word of God. People, the devil knows it. It's a big deal. And during this age, man, God was using. His word to open up doors no man could shut. The key of David. So <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit more about that because um, we don't have, we're, we're going to, I'll touch on this third sub point here. <clears throat> uh, the key of David is the, is, it's mentioned here. I just defined this in HBI last night. The authority of God's word. Now look at Isaiah chapter 22 with me for just a moment. I want you to see something about the key of David. Um, when I was coming up, it was, you know, always the key of David is the word of God, you know, and, and it is the word of God. But when you really study the key of David, there's a lot, there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, the Bible says, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Now, by the way, as you go through the seven churches, there's these, there's these clues in every church age that refer you back to the Old Testament. 
And so why is that? Because after the catching away of the church, those Jews and, and Gentiles even that, that uh, don't you know, get killed in the tribulation will be able to, to link this together. But primarily the Jews, 144,000 also will instruct and connect these dots. And so, um, and so there's some things going on here with David. The key of David we find in Revelation 3 and verse 7. And so he opens doors and no man can shut. But if you go to Isaiah, go back to Isaiah 36. Because Isaiah is a key, a key person in this, in this issue of, of the key of David. Isaiah 36, he says, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent uh, uh, Rabshakeh the, from uh, Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and, and uh, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto, uh, 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 said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, sayest thou, but they are but in vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now in whom dost thou trust, that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed of Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all that trust in him. Now let me pause there. So what's going on, just for historical context, and I don't have time to read all the other cross-references and kings and chronicles, but, but, but uh, Sennacherib, who at the time is the greatest king on the planet and kingdom, uh, this is before the Babylonian uh, rise of Nebuchadnezzar, um, and so this precedes that. He's the greatest kingdom at the time. He comes in, or his armies, he's actually not there. He sends an envoy, and, and he tells the leaders of Israel, he tells Elikim, Rabshakna tells Elikim, hey, you send a message to your king Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah has, has shut down the city. They're all enclosed. They're encamped around Jerusalem. Uh, it's, they're on a starvation plan. Uh, Hezekiah has, uh, it's still there, the, the, the pool. He has engineered water to come out of the mountains down into Jerusalem covertly. So they don't know that they have a supply of water. So Hezekiah has a well of water springing up, right? Like Jesus, the well of life. And it's in this key city, which is Jerusalem. Now, at the time of this discussion, um, all of Judah's, I mean, it, well, all of uh, the ten tribes of the north, they've already been in captivity. They're gone. Now all the cities of Judah are gone. So it'd be, it'd be tantamount to an army coming to the United States and wiping us all out. It's all over, and all you have left is Washington, D.C., and, and, and some sort of defense mechanisms around it, and everybody's just huddled in Washington, D.C., waiting for the end, Right? And so the king's saying, I don't know what you think you're trusting in. I mean, do you really think that the fair, he's assuming that Egypt is what's going to, you think the king of Egypt's going to come up here and defend you? You know, what you, he has no concept, no earthly idea of who is defending Hezekiah. He thinks he's leaning on Egypt. Uh, this is so instructional, guys, for today. I mean, I just, if people could get their head around this. And this is everything to do with the key of David. Because David, if you think about David, what did he do? He, he literally went out at a time when Israel was in peril, peril as a young boy, believing only what the Word of God said and his experience on who God was. 
That's the key of David. It's not just like, oh, David loved the Word of God. He loved the Word of God, yeah. He loved it enough to execute on it. He loved it enough to go out and actually execute on God. Like, hey, giant guy, you don't belong on our property. I, I know these other guys are scared, but I'm a, little, I'm a little honked off, you know, because you don't belong here. I'm going to get you out of here. What do God some men in the church would get like that about the way the devil's dealing with their family, right? Get out of here. Ain't none of your business. Get on out. And so, anyway... I'm going to get to preaching. So, 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 uh, so Hezekiah, man, he, he's, he's defending. This guy doesn't understand it. So back in our text, um, in, in Isaiah 36, he's like, you're dependent on Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You're trusting in the world, in essence. But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, is, not, uh, is, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar. Now therefore, give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. So he's saying, if you're trusting in your God, uh, by the way, we've already torn down all the altars. Of course, he doesn't know. Yeah, you're supposed to be worshiping in Jerusalem <laughs> anyway. He's like, I'll give you 2,000 horses. I'm going to give you a head start. I'm going to spot you 2,000 horses. If you got riders, I'll give you guys a chance because you have no chance against us. I'm going to, I'll, I'll tie one arm behind my back just because you guys, you guys stink. I'm going to, you're, just, you're so worthless. I, I don't even, you're wasting my breath even threatening you. Can I just do something to make this a fight? You know, I mean, he's really insulting the nation of Israel and uh, just telling them how weak right, they are. Like the church of Philadelphia. Remember, Jesus says, thou art weak. That's a little strength. You have a little strength. And he goes on to say, uh, in verse 8, Now therefore give, oh, verse 9, now, now then wilt thou turn away thy face of one captain of the least of my servants, and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And I am now I come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it. The Lord said unto me, Go up against this land and destroy it. So now he's mocking them and saying the lord told me to just come up and destroy you guys i mean he's really he's really getting a little out of out of his league there now notice eliakim verse 11 then said eliakim and shebna and joah and unto rabshakna speak i pray thee unto thy servants in the syrian language for we understand it and speak not to us in the jews language in the ears of the people that are on the wall so now they get into a discussion of languages. So he says, hey, listen. So this guy, by the way, this Rab Shachna fellow can speak Hebrew. So he's saying all this out loud in Hebrew so everybody can hear it. And that's all, the, all the mighty men can hear what's being said. And so they say, hey, speak in your Syrian tongue. Don't speak in Hebrew. And I'm not going to read the rest. It's actually a little bit R-rated if you read the rest of that. So, uh, and he doesn't. He refuses to speak in the Syrian tongue. And then gets in, he gets even more derogatory as you read through the text it's like you know we got to start bleeping things out and it just gets it's like no we're not going to read that tonight at church it's mixed company i feel a awkward about it so 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 you can read it on your own right i mean that's i'm serious i mean this is a serious throwdown verbal throwdown and they're getting they're going back and forth and, and so the moral of the story is um is what happens is is uh just go to chapter 37 and it came to pass when king hezekiah heard it he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went unto the house of the Lord. This is really the end of the story. So Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, he was over, he was over the household of Shebna, it says, uh, the scribe and Joah and the son of Asaph, the recorder, 
and they went to Hezekiah, they rent their clothes, and they told him all the words. So they, they recorded everything that was said, right? They didn't have a microphone back then. So they actually wrote everything down word for word, and they go back to Hezekiah the king, and then they say, King, here's the transcript. And Hezekiah the king hears it, and here's, this is his response. And it says in verse 3, And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day, today is a day of trouble and rebuke and of blasphemy, for the children are come to birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, who the king of Assyria his master has sent to reproach the living God, and will reproach the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. Does that not sound a little bit like David? I mean, when you get into this and he, he says, uh, hey, you know what? The reproach. Go back and study David and Goliath. You know what David says? This is a reproach. This is a reproach on the name of the Lord. You've reproached the living God. I know we aren't worthy of being defended, but Lord, would you defend your name? So the servants of the king, Hezekiah, came to Isaiah. Getting back to Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say unto your master, Thus saith the Lord. So here comes the word from the Lord. He's going to give a 50 page. All this discussion, I mean, we've got voluminous amounts of recording in the word of God. Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah of this interaction. This is well documented. So God's going to come back with a very long response, I'm sure, because all of this verbiage is very verbose. No, this is the answer. Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard. Wherewith thy servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Done. Period. Over. <laughs> God's like, no problem. I got this. Don't sweat it, Hezekiah. It's on me. And that's literally what happens. The angel of the Lord comes overnight, whips her tail. They go back. The two sons of, uh, uh, this is not just in uh, Hebrew history, but also Assyrian it's in the British Museum. This is recorded in secular history as well by the Assyrians. This is how it happened. Uh, it's a little bit different ending. But at the end of the day, his sons go back and they kill their dad. And so his, the, the king ends up getting killed, Sennacherib, by his own kids. And so uh, the angel of the Lord defeats him and, and it's over. All right, so why did I go through all of that drill? Because I want you guys to understand a little bit more. When we talk about the key of David, we, oh, it's the word of God. It is the Word of God, but it's more than just the Word of God. It's, it's the Word of God as people depend on it. I mean, Hezekiah has nothing but the Word of God. He has no other options, right? He's Richard Gere, an officer and a gentleman. I mean, he has nowhere else to go. I mean, all he has is Jesus, right? That's it. He's only got Jesus. I know that's crazy, but I think every time I think of that scene, I think that that's how we should be as Christians. I have nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else, and I, don't worry watching that movie if you've never seen it. It is not worth watching. But anyway, <laughs> you're going to go, what a heathen. But anyhow, so, so uh, I wasn't saved when I saw that. Huh? Lou Gossett Jr. is the man. That, it's a little colorful. But um, run it through VidAngel if you watch it. Let me just say that. So, um, but anyway, where was I? I took my, oh. Yeah, it's, a, it's about the, you know, David had nothing but Jesus to depend on. Hezekiah had nothing but Jesus. And in both cases, God was establishing a kingdom. When you look at David, he's coming out of the time of Judges. I mean, you don't really discern much other than there's a king, but the king's a loser in Saul. And 
And it's kind of, they can't even defeat the enemies. I mean, that's the problem. They have a king, but they can't drive out the enemies. They couldn't drive them out under the time of Judges. You have to go back to the other guy whose name was Jesus, Joshua. Who He's the one that got the enemies out. So David comes up, and for some reason, David has, still has enough faith a few hundred years later um, to say, you know what? God gave Joshua these commands. God gave Moses these commands. God gave us a promised land. I'm living here today. And yet, why are these darn giants running around on here telling us what to do? Let's get them off of here. This is God's property. This is God's word. It's a reproach to have these giants on our land and not doing something about it. If no one else is going to do it, I'll do it. Right? So he's like, I'll do it. David's a type of Christ. Of course, you know the, the picture there. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is the one who takes up He's the one who gets the victory. And so it's our faith in him. Hezekiah, on the other hand, all he needed was faith. Right? All he had to do was, he just took the petitions and laid them out before the Lord, and he, he just prayed, Lord, help. Lord, help. That's all he, if you want to boil his prayer down to two words, Lord, help. I don't know what else to do. And, and the Lord comes back through Isaiah the prophet and says, no problem. Thanks for asking. You had not because you asked not. I've got it taken care of tomorrow. <laughs> so, and, uh, and, and sure enough, now, by the way, there's a lot of lessons here because it did, there was a lot of prep that Hezekiah did. So you should do your work, but you should never forget to pray, right? David did his work too. He fought the lion. He fought the bear. He did all the work. But at the end of the day, it's the Lord who gets the victory. And so this church of Philadelphia, the church age of Philadelphia, I mean, really, for again, you take, I just, and I'm not, a, I'm not just, I mean, I'm glad we had a revolution and threw off the Brits. So, and I'm not British, even though I am. But uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, you had to throw off that power. But God used this little bitty island. You know, he sunk the Spanish Armada in, in the English Channel to keep them free from Rome. So a common people could get a Bible. So men like, well, there's all kinds of men we could talk about. So those Lollards that Tyndale was training could go around the countryside and preach. So those, those, uh, those Scotsmen, man, those Scotsmen have always been about the Word of God. God's Word's still going through the uh, Scots and, the, and even in Ireland, man. I mean, God's always working among these people because there's always been a remnant of people holding fast to the faithful Word. And then there's these people over here in, the, in, this co- in these colonies that threw off the, the yoke of, of King George and then they're like, we don't know what else to do. We're just going to try to do something based on uh, you know, this concept that God would do something more noble than what we've been seeing in these monarchs. So let's try this, a government of the people, for the people, by the people, as, uh, as uh, Abraham Lincoln stated it, which has its problems because the people are stink. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, there's some blessings to, to monarchies and absolute authority. If you've ever been in a kingdom with an active king, you'd notice it immediately. There's a fear, uh, and you just societies have got a whole other way of doing things. Um, and you don't dare raise your voice against the king. And so, uh, and I'm not, I definitely don't want a king, praise God. But the whole idea in our country, right, is that we have a king, and his name is Jesus. And we all behave ourselves accordingly. And so, uh, of course, today that's being challenged by these very philosophies that we've been talking about that rose up during as a response to the Philadelphian church aid. So it's kind of like a delayed reaction that we're seeing rippling into throughout church history. And today, that's where we live. But if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. If you remove these ancient landmarks, you're never going to understand what's going on today. 
this is really a big battle between good and evil, light and darkness. And these philosophies and things that you deal with, man, at the end of the day, uh, it's okay when they make you feel stupid and dumb and like you don't have any power because at the end of the day, that's exactly where God wants you. He wants you right here, claiming these promises of this book. And that's Philadelphian. So many years ago, I'll tell you how this came to me in a really practical way in the history of this church. So many years ago, I was reading a book uh, called Irresistible, The Church of Irresistible Influence about 20 years ago. And uh, we were planting this church, and, and I'm reading this book, church planting book. I was reading everything I could read about church planting and talking to everybody I knew that was planting churches and had all these things f- flying through my head. And, uh, and God was just filtering things out and helping me see clearly, you know, through all of this stuff so I could go forward here at Heartland. <clears throat> and uh, I had some clarity on one thing before I came here, because before I was ever at Heartland in particular, I knew... If I was, I didn't know I was going to be a senior pastor, but I, wherever I went, went uh, as a pastor, I wanted to be part of a church that could literally reach the world to accomplish the mission of God, literally. That was the main thing. I didn't care if it was Timbuktu or New York City or Cass County. That was the only thing. So we gathered our planning team at my house, and that was what I asked. I said, okay, does everybody on the team really believe that God can reach the world from Harrisonville, Missouri? To a man, I mean, I went around the room. Because if they didn't, they're on the wrong church plant team. And everybody was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, then you're the team that we need. And so that's how we started. But I didn't, you know, really? I mean, what, how do you do that? You know, I don't know. So, <laughs> so, but that's what the Bible says. Go ye therefore teach all nations. You don't really know how. You just got to believe it, right? You just got to go and make disciples the way he said. So, so that's where we started. So, I'm, I'm, so you kind of get the idea. That was locked down before I ever even came to here, before I put my foot on there. I mean, I was preaching in the 90s, mid-90s, in these little country churches and stuff. And, and that's that stuff God was working out in my heart long before I ever knew where I'd end up. And, um, and so once we got underway, you know, and we're doing this church planning stuff, and I'm trying to figure all that out, and I come from a big church, now I'm in a smaller, you know, totally different culture from an urban, suburban setting, and I'm in a more rural setting, and I'm trying to sort through all that and all these philosophies on church planning, blah, 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 blah. And so I'm reading this, this book called the, the Church of Irresistible Influence. And in essence, it's, it uh, uses a metaphor all the way through about building bridges. And at this time, uh, all these metaphors were ringing true because I kept hearing, not just in church planning world, but in regular church world, everybody was talking about building bridges. You know? And so I'm like, well, man, you know, and I'm reading this book about building bridges. And they're, they're using real analogies of build, building bridges, like what goes into building a bridge and and some of it really appeals to me. It's talking about vision and planning. And I'm like, hey, I, I can do that, you know. But as I'm reading through it, I'm like, well, let me get out my Bible. And we're having our first vision conference. So it's about our second year in because I think our first vision conference was year number two at HBF. Hey, yeah, I, think, I don't think I did it the first year. I think it was year number two, so it would be 2003. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm flipping through my Bible, and I'm looking for bridge. Like, where's the bridge is that here? And you know what? I didn't find any. There's not one bridge in the Bible. Nobody's crossing bridges in the Bible. I mean, I'm like sitting back in my chair in my study going, man, maybe I should take a note of this. And this is like during our vision conference. I'm, this is happening in, in t- as I'm in the midst of having our first, which was like, this many people at our vision. I'm not even kidding. I mean, it was small in the weeknight sessions. It's like, can we get 15 people here? You know? And, uh, and man, I remember God just clicked it in. He's like, Brian, 
I'm trying to show you something. I, I don't build bridges. I'm not about that. And by the way, I didn't, at that time, I didn't really click with me that the pontiff was the chief bridge builder. That didn't, that knowledge hadn't sunk in. But boy, when I saw that later, I was like, whoa, holy moly, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and so God was leading me away from that philosophy of bridge building to the philosophy of trusting God to cross obstacles without bridges. How do you do that? Sometimes he puts you in a tough spot, like Egypt, right? And you're coming out of the world. You have nowhere. It's you. It's the ocean behind you and the devil, you know, I mean, or the devil behind you and the, the deep blue sea before you, however you want to look at it. But you're in a, hot, you're in a rock and a hard spot. What are you going to do? You're going to do what David did. You're going to do what Hezekiah did. And you're going to do what God tells you to do. You're going to walk up by faith and trust God to open up the water so he can do something miraculous to deliver you. Right? That's how he works. If you're going to enter the promised land, what do you tell Joshua to do? Same thing. Just put your foot in the water. Not always the same thing twice, is it? Right? It's not the same story with Hezekiah as it was with David, as it was with Moses, as it was with Joshua. But all of them that are consistent is this. The key of David on the shoulder. Right? The key of David is, is believing the word of God enough to, to depend upon it. And so, man, I'm preaching that. I'll never forget preaching that. That Man, it just hit me like so clearly. I'm like, man, this is the church Heartland has to be. We have to be a church that's willing to cross rivers without bridges. That means you enter by faith. You plan everything and you go, but you never know. And we do it all the time around here. <laughs> so we did it at Easter. That was a, we just did it at this last Easter. We didn't know what was going to happen. We're just like, we just got to do this. And so we did it by faith. We did that with the Bhutanese refugees. I mean, God calls us to, to live by faith. And to, and to step out. Now, that doesn't mean foolishness either, right? That doesn't mean you do stupid stuff. You have to do biblical stuff and depend upon the Lord Jesus. So this key of David's a big deal, and it provides open doors. And so if you want to have influence, if you really want to accomplish the mission of God and the power of God for the glory of God, mission of God and the word of God, if you want to equip the saints of God and the word of God to accomplish the mission of God and the power of God for the glory of God, and reach the world, literally, as God has commanded us to, you cannot go any other way. You can't do it by having the biggest budget. You can't do it by, and there's nothing wrong with having big budgets, but it's not just about money, and it's not just about men, although those are important aspects. <laughs> it's, it's ultimately about saying, you know what? The Word of God is so important, and God's mission is so important that if there is no money and there is no men, we're still going to go forward in faith, and we're going to trust God for victories that we have no way of even knowing how He's going to deliver. And we're going to do it by God's, by God's grace. That's the key of David. We're going to do what the kingdom work is at the time by faith in what God has said. And so, and it comes, it does come with the authority of God's word. So there's no denying that the reason that, the, that this church age was so important is because of the Gutenberg press and getting the word of God into, into the hearts of men and women who were willing to go, whether they were Tyndale's Lollards whether they were, uh, you know, the missionaries, Anna and Judson, Hudson Taylor, uh, 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 William Carey, uh, you just go down the list, right? All these guys, uh, David Livingston, I mean, these guys just went. David Brainerd, uh, Amy Carmichael, et cetera, et cetera. You just go down the list. These people said, you know what? This is what God said. This is what we're going to do. And beloved, we're doing this now. We're doing this in real time. So when you see a guy like like, uh, uh, Doug Pearson get up here, you're looking at a guy that's just like those guys. There's a different age, different time, 
Some of the guys, these cats that God brings through this pulpit, and not, I'm not, not, not talking about me. I'm talking about some of these guys that God brings through here. Amazing. Like if we were going to write books someday, they probably won't get noted anywhere. Nobody will ever know about it, and the rapture will happen. But I just want you to know that God is, God is bringing people in our midst that are operating in the very same way as what you saw in the Philadelphian church age. And that is so encouraging for me as a pastor because that's what we want to be involved in, right? We want to we carry the ball the way God wants it to be carried and see him get some traction. So I'm going to have to stop there. Uh, so next time we get together, we'll pick it up under uh, B2 there. Uh, this is, is the church of the open door, which is a good place to pick it up uh, after talking about the key of David. So we'll review point B there and, and jump back into that. Let me pause right there. Are there any questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, why are Seventh-day Adventists a cult or an offshoot? Because they have a different, um, uh, uh, what's the lady's name? Um, yeah, White, Helen White. Yes, Ellen? Ellen G. White. So there they've got another gospel, Ellen G. White, uh, number one. Number two, uh, they are legalistic in the true sense of the word where they adhere to the law over the New Testament grace, so they're not really dividing the word. In that, in that case, um, <clears throat> they presume that we are ignorant of, you know, like Saturday being the Sabbath, and some Baptists are ignorant of that, but we understand all that. Uh, we understand that Jesus rose again on the first day of the week. We celebrate on the first day of the week. We understand that the rest that Israel has is in the millennium. We understand all that. Um, they understand that, but uh, they hold, adhere to the law, and so they don't, like the Galatians, they don't rightly divide. They don't rightly discern. So ultimately, you get into a workspace um, instead of grace based uh, situation there so uh, not to mention you also have um, extra biblical uh, influence through Ellen White which is totally absurd that's no different than um, um, Joseph Smith in that regard I do not know I don't I I don't know how to answer that because I don't know I've studied it but I've forgotten it to be frank with you yeah Ron Well, and it does give you, you can get wacko because you get extra biblical influence and uh, extra biblical teaching. So that's where you get in trouble with all charismatic groups, um, whether it's IHOP down the street here. You know, that fella, uh, uh, what's his name? Bickle, Mike Bickle. You know, he's trying to mainstream and stay, he's trying to like kind of keep his arms away from Bethel and co cozy up to to uh, Midwest Theological and all those guys. But at the end of the day, the guys, he's all about extra-biblical revelation. And so you can say what you want, but, why, I mean, I've, I've got tapes. i got it on tape in my office. I mean, that's, that's crazy, scary, stupid. I mean, you got to be, you, that's like Antichrist stuff. So extra-biblical revelation, whether it's Ellen White, whether it's, uh, whether it's Mike Bickle or whoever he has in his pulpit telling you that, you know, I went to hell and fought with the devil or whatever, you know, whatever, just all this crazy extra-biblical revelation that charismatics get into, quite frankly, uh, because they leave the Word of God, they get caught up in emotion, and I'm not denying their experiences. They probably do have visions, and they may have out-of-body experiences. I have no idea. 
it is just not square in the word of God. And at this time, we got to be careful and try the spirits. So that's a good question. And, uh, and a lot, of, and we live in a, a very, very, uh, a lot of winds of doctrine in America. There really are. So you do need to be buoyed in uh, the pillar and ground of the, the truth is the church. And so we need to stay focused in the word and be grounded. So all those things will be exposed. That's a good question. So I need to, I need to wrap it up for time's sake. If there's no other questions, if there are, I will hang around and entertain them, but I'm going to let everybody go first. So let's pray and be dismissed. And then if there's more, plus I'm a little concerned because my wife's not here. So I hope my car's okay and uh, she's okay. So, uh, so I will want to probably depart fairly soon and find out what's going on with her. So Heavenly Father, I thank